Please be seated. I remember back in the fall, Zach reaching out to all the communicators getting ready uh, for this series on the Minor Prophets. And uh, when I found out that it was a rotating series, I was really excited uh, because I had never been to Waterford and I had heard a lot of good things. And so I was really excited to come to Waterford for the first time. Uh, my wife and I had been attending uh, Lake Mary for a year prior to me coming on, uh, on staff at Herndon. And guys, it's not that bad. Lake Mary. Uh, OJ... OJ is actually a really nice guy. Um, I'm just kidding. He's not. Um, but in preparation for this series, uh, Zach emailed all the communicators, and uh, he asked everyone, what are your top three minor prophets? And I thought about that a little bit, and I thought to myself, who has a list of top three minor prophets? <laughs> Nobody. And, and so I uh, responded to Zach, and I said, Zach, that's going to be really tough can I please give you my top five? Because I just don't think I can narrow it down to top three. Nothing says a more productive morning devotional than reading through the minor prophets. Am I right? Totally kidding. Nobody has a list of top three minor prophets. I sent Zach a couple names, Micah being one of them, because I thought it would be fun and ironic to teach on the name uh, in the book that I'm uh, named after. And so here we are looking at the minor prophet Micah. Now, in the middle of March, my wife and I, we bought a house. We're super blessed and fortunate to be able to do that. And uh, it's because we needed a little bit more space. We're expecting our first child. Uh, he's going to be here. It's a boy. He's going to be here in August. And we're just super excited. Uh, and so we needed a little bit of space. And we bought a house. And uh, it, was, um, it, it was a fixer-upper. I'll say that for sure. Uh, it had a couple problems, the, the main one being... Uh, you know, we had some rats that were making their home in our property. And last week at Herndon, I stood up there confidently saying that the rats had been taken care of because I thought they were uh, up until last Thursday when I opened up our laundry door. It's, it's, connect, it's, it's uh, a part from the house and uh, opened up the door and, you know, there was a nice little rat that I saw with my own eyes, panicked a little bit. He scurried up the wall, found himself in a hole. So I can't say that the rats have been taken care of, but we're working on it. Uh, on top of the rats, uh, the tile needed to go. Um, it, the grout smelled like pee probably because of the rats. Uh, the outside of the house needed some serious attention. The yard uh, was so messed up. I had leaves, like inches of leaves piled up. There was no grass to be seen. The bathtub needed to be resealed and redone. There's some other things. And, and most of all, uh, the kitchen backsplash. Guys, it was absolutely horrible. And what blows my mind is that somebody at one point looked at that backsplash and said, yep, that's the one. <laughs> that is what I want on my kitchen wall. Now, I don't have a picture for you in case you have that very same backsplash. Uh, again, it's our opinion. You can have the backsplash you want, but for us, it needed to go. So uh, our house had been on the market for a few weeks with no one living uh, in it prior to it going up for sale. Um, but, but we do know that before it went up for sale, there were people living there, so it wasn't vacant for too long. And the more I thought about it, the more perplexed I became is because people lived in that house with those conditions for some time. Yes, there was some evidence of them making some minor improvements, but at the end of the day, the people that lived there were content with how things were. Even if you could hear rats scratching their way through the attic or having the constant smell of urine going through the house. 
I myself, Micah, walked up in there once we closed and said no. There are some things that need to change right away. This is not how a house should smell or look. And I'm sorry, rats, you are not welcomed here. You may be a part of God's creation, but you are disgusting and you cost me a lot of money. So please go. There was so much inattention to detail and lack of care that the house was in really bad shape, far from its true design and purpose. When we read the book of Micah, we see something, something similar happening. The nation of Israel, God's chosen and set-apart people, had been inattentive and lacked the care for what God had called them to. And Micah, commissioned by God, walks up in there and says, no, some things have to change and it can't wait any longer. You've been living in these conditions for too long. Change is necessary and change is coming. So who was Micah? Who was the minor prophet Micah? He was, he was from a small agricultural village just outside of Jerusalem uh, called Moresheth. And at the time, the nation of Israel had, had previously been divided between the ten northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. Now, Micah does address both Israel and Judah, but he mainly focuses attention on southern Judah. Furthermore, in Micah 1.1, we read that the word of the Lord came, as in God gave Micah this message during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, three kings of Judah, which dates his ministry around late 8th century B.C. leading into the seventh, early 7th century B.C. We have a chart here to see where he falls in line with the rest of Israel's history as well as the other prophets. Now, to give some context to Micah's words, we need to understand what is going on during those days. Without understanding, uh, without understanding the greater context, Micah's words have very little meaning to us. Now, I know that for some of you, once I said history and context and threw some dates on there and showed you a map and, and, and said Old Testament and Israelites, I may have lost some of you. You said, nope, I'm out. I am not interested. But I promise you that this is really good stuff. And it's good because it's, it, it's crazy to see how similar these people's hearts and struggles are to our own. Yes, the context is different, but we are all motivated the same. So what was happening? What was happening during these times of Micah? Well, unfortunately, nothing really too good. In First and Second Chronicles, as well as First and Second Kings, which are four books that we have in the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, we're given a recap of all the kings of Israel and Judah. And, and, and these kings, uh, they were meant to lead these people according to God's covenant and according to God's law. The qualifications of kingship are listed uh, in us in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and on top of other things, the king was, and, and I quote here, he was to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and decrees. This was the standard of kingship. They were to obey and lead the people in obedience according to God's covenant law. Now, unfortunately, out of all of the northern kings of Israel, all 20 of them, none of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So instead of leading the people according to God's ways and according to God's law, they were doing the exact opposite and, and acting out in all horrible ways and in no shape or form did they distinguish themselves from the neighboring countries. Idolatry ran rampant. Thus, Micah comes in and, and he prophesies their future destruction and exile. 
He says that the plague of Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, is incurable and that it must be destroyed. These were the consequences to pay. God's covenant made it clear in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which essentially says, follow me and I will lead you to life and pour out my blessings. And on the other hand, it says disobey and the opposite will occur. And you'd think that the southern kingdom of Judah would be total opposite to make for a good story and a good contrast, but the kings of Judah struggled as well. Only eight out of the 20 kings of Judah are, are told to do what, or did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yet even those eight struggled to be faithful as well. Micah says that the plague of Samaria had made its way down to Jerusalem. In 2 Kings chapters 15 through 20, we get an inside scoop, a close look at Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which again were the three kings during Micah's, the three kings of Judah during Micah's days. And we're told that Jotham does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So he is one of those eight considered good. But he did not remove the places of worship. So he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but at the same time, he did not destroy the places of idolatry, thus allowing idolatry to continue. Once Jotham uh, passes away and Ahaz takes the throne as the next king, uh, we're told that Ahaz is even worse than Jotham. Not only did Ahaz allow idolatry to continue, but he himself partook in it, even to the point of sacrificing his own son in the fire and doing other detestable practices uh, of foreign nations that the Lord had originally driven out of this land. We have to remember that Joshua, the great conqueror, when he, when he and the Israelites originally came to this land and conquered this, the point was to drive out the evil and to drive out the idolatry to allow the, the people to flourish and, and live according to God's covenant law. This clearly wasn't happening. Now let me stop here really quickly because we can hear these things and think, yeah, those are messed up. I mean, child sacrifice and, and all these other things, the, the, the usage of idolatry can feel unrelatable to us when we hear of it because not many of us struggle with these types of things that were going on during Micah's days. The, the, this concept is so foreign to us, yet idolatry is way more than those things. In Summit's a newly published magazine, which I highly recommend you grabbing a copy on your way out. It's a, it's a beautiful magazine. It's the yellow cover. And uh, Kaylee, she was somewhere out here, our regroup director, she was passing out donuts. In it, she has an article on idolatry and its influence on our lives today. In it, she writes, we no longer erect Asherah poles to ensure beauty. We don't call upon Baal to bring us success. We would not petition Mammon to increase our wealth still one has to only look around to see we still worship money, sex, and power. We have simply eliminated the middleman. Idols are anything in our lives that bring us a false sense of security and control. They just looked different to the, to the people of Micah's days, days than they do for us. So let me ask you, what are the idols of your life? What are the areas that you look to for a greater sense of control and security outside from what God can offer you? Is it your house? Is it financial security? Is it job satisfaction? Your family, other relationships, success? Fill in the blank. What are the things in your life that you look to for a greater sense of security and control? Like I said, the context is way different, but the motivations are the same. 
So picking back up, Hezekiah takes the throne after Ahaz, the third and final king during Micah's time. And, he de- and we're told that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He stands up to foreign enemies while facing immense pressure. He, he destroys the places of, of idolatry and he trusted in the Lord. Finally, we have a good king. Hezekiah heeded to the warnings of Micah, repented, and got things back on track. Yet as Richard Phillips says, so ingrained were the habits of sin that a hundred years later, Jerusalem was destroyed at God's hand for its persistent sin of idolatry. These are the times of Micah. And I tell you that to bring a little bit more weight to what he is saying. These are the circumstances that he is called into. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, it says, The Lord warned Israel and Judah, both in the northern and, and, and southern kingdoms, through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. This was the calling of the prophets. Their responsibility and duties were to call God's people back to himself, to reveal to them the ways that they have been living and to boldly call for repentance. Because guess what? Just like the people during Micah's day and for us today, it is easy for us to turn away and turn to idolatry or the things that bring us a greater sense of security and control. And we do that with little to no effort. So with all of this going on, Micah breaks into a lament or this honest cry out to God that we read in in chapter 7, starting in verse 7. He says, what misery is mine. I I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The the ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar and the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. Looking out, this is what Micah sees. There is greed, idolatry, injustice, apostasy, or this idea of turning away from God, and especially amongst the leaders. But as the leaders, their followers followed, thus the whole nation was living a life of sin. He says that even the best of them is like a briar and the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. Let me tell you, if your yard is anything like mine, which is not impressive at all, You do not want your relationship with God compared to that of a thorned bush. Unless, of course, your yard is like Gary's. Then I'm sure you have beautifully trimmed thorn bushes and and something that you actually want to look at. Micah calls out the sins of the people and warns them of the consequences. Northern Israel at this point is too far gone, and Micah turns his attention now to Judah in hopes that their outcome will be different. And with all of this going on, like I said, there's clear hurt, pain, heartbreak going on, yet no one felt it more than God himself. The idolatry of each individual is leading to greater injustice. He was looking out to his people, and all he saw was them turning from him, and it broke his heart. In chapter 6, God says, my people, 
What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. How would we respond or react to a friend, spouse, parent, a coworker, someone close in your life if they asked you those questions? What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? God reminds his, the, his people of how he has been faithful to them and, and what he has done for them, which when you compare to how his people are living, it adds an even deeper level of emotion. And this is profound because in his humility, God is opening himself up to his people, and he's even doing that to us today with those same questions. So let me ask you, how has God burdened us? How has he burdened you? What has he done to you and to me except remain faithful to his word? Now, in response to someone doing something for us, we have a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, what can I do for you in return? Especially when it comes to our relationship with God. This is often what keeps us going the most in our spiritual journeys, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And starting, verse, and starting in verse 6 and 7, Micah sprouts off a list of hypothetical things that you could do in response to God's faithfulness. This includes worshiping and exalting God and presenting sacrifices and gifts. Essentially this idea of, of just doing things for God. Yet verse 8 reads and shows us that, that what is required of us is much simpler than that. Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now Micah is directing most of his attention to the kings, false prophets, and leaders who are misleading the people. Idolatry and the pursuit of control and security was leading to injustice at the expense of others. Rank was leading to abuse and truth was simply blurred. Yet the people are not necessarily exempt from Micah's words or warnings either. They may not be the ones making the big calls, but they never stood up to the injustices or, the, or idolatry. It seems that when we read, if the leaders led righteously, that the people followed suit and lived righteously. But if the leaders at the same time were leading unrighteously, the people followed suit like blind sheep. It is so easy for us to look out into our world and see the injustices and blame our leaders, institutions, or political systems, saying, well, I have nothing to do with that, so why should I bother? Why should I care? Or, on the other hand, we see what is going on right in front of us, and we simply turn a blind eye because we believe the problems are just too big to solve on our own. And guys, the underlining issue wasn't a broken system or lack of structural support. It was way bigger than that. It came down to idolatry. It came down to the self-centeredness of every individual king or farmer and everybody, everyone in between that allowed everyone to live a life they desired regardless of how it affected those around them, which was so far from what God had in mind. Does any of this sound familiar? A nation and a world filled with idolatry and justice, lack of love, and people not walking humbly with the Lord? My goodness, if anything, this is a mirror held directly up to our world today in 2019. It is so easy for us to accept the way things are and just do our own thing. 
Even as Christians, we say, well, hey, at least I'm coming to church and I'm, at least I'm worshiping and I'm reading my Bible and I'm doing my devotions and I'm, I'm praying twice a day. Yet at the same time, ignoring justice and mercy. So what do those mean? What does it mean to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord? When it comes to justice, all sorts of things can come to mind. Stephen Um, in his book, Micah for You, and no, I did not forget his name. His name is Stephen Um, and uh, in his book, he discusses this idea, and he says that when we hear justice, we quickly jump to this, uh, this idea of retribution, this idea of, of giving back someone what they deserve. It is that, yet it is also more than that. He says it's giving voices to those who have no voice. It's standing up for those who are vulnerable, voiceless, and powerless. He says it's creating a situation in a society where everything is right. This is what true and biblical justice looks like. And it starts with the gospel, but it does not end there. People need to know the message of Christ, but people also have physical needs and real needs. We need to be doing justice by helping people in both their spiritual and physical needs. One does not go without the other. That's why I love what James says in James chapter 2, verse 16. If one says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? We ought to be doing justice through both evangelism and service. And please don't always wait for an official platform. Start with the people directly in your life. Start with your family. Start with your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that you run into on a daily basis. We are to do justice. With mercy, I love how it says we are to love mercy. Because when we love something, we think of it often. We put time and energy towards it. We want others to know about it, and we share it. For instance, when... When my wife and I, when we go out to eat, you know, we normally order two different things. And if we take a first, our first bite of that meal, what's the first thing that we do? If it's good. If it's not good, we don't do this. But if it's good, the first thing we say is, oh, my gosh, you have to try this. We share it. For instance, uh, the other day, uh, I, I got home a little bit later. And uh, my wife, Laura, had already eaten. And uh, so I came home, and I was left to my own doing to prepare something to eat, which is never a good thing. And uh, so I kind of looked through our fridge, and I realized we had some leftover chicken, and uh, we had some veggies, and I saw we had some pita bread. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to make a pita sandwich. So I toasted the pita, put some hummus in it, cut up some veggies, warmed up the chicken, put it in there. And guys, let me tell you what, this pita was so good. I loved this pita so much that I was sitting in there in the kitchen eating it. And uh, I just thought to myself, you know what, this thing is so good, I have to share this with my wife. She will definitely love this pita as much as I will. And I had toasted a little too much, so it was more like a cracker. And so every bite, it kept falling more and more apart. And so I had stuff oozing all over my hands. And I'm sitting in the kitchen calling to my wife, Laura, you have to come in here and try my pita. And so I'm sitting there patiently waiting for her to come. And so I can share this moment with her. She comes in, looks at it, and politely declines. <laughs> to love mercy means to be all about mercy. It means to think and act with mercy. It means to share mercy and engage in it. 
So what does that look like on a daily basis? How are we to love and, and, and do and show mercy? Perhaps we could all start behind the wheel. Man, road rage gets a hold of all of us. And if you think it doesn't, I think it does. Because anytime you drive on I-4, there is no mercy to be shown. Show mercy. Perhaps it's showing mercy to someone who has hurt you and you're having a hard time forgive. Or maybe it's showing mercy to your kids even in times they disobey. And look, I get it. Showing mercy can feel like the most unnatural thing to do, but let's not look to ourselves to do that. We must keep the mercy of God through his offered gospel at the forefront of our minds. Remember, we are called to love mercy. We are to submerge ourselves in it and think of it often to allow it to flow from us freely. And that mercy has to stem from a place that we find in the gospel. We are to do justice. We are to love mercy. And finally, we are to walk humbly with the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk humbly with the Lord? We hear that all the time. You know, we ask each other, how's your walk with the Lord? Or my walk with the Lord is this and that. So what does it mean? Well, when you think of walking, it leads you to a destination. You're headed somewhere. Where the idea of going on a walk with somebody, a lot of times we have a conversation with the person we're walking with. Or people that go on a march for a cause, there's, they are identifying with the cause. There's a relationship and a connection with those that they are walking with. So is it with our walks with Jesus. When we walk with him, we are headed in a direction with him. We are in a relationship with him and we're having an ongoing conversation. And we're to be doing that humbly. And the opposite of walking humbly is walking with a lot of pride. Have you ever seen somebody that just carries themselves with a lot of pride? They walk with a lot of pride. You don't even have to have a conversation with them to know where their head is at. I remember my uh, brother, I, I'm the, uh, the youngest of three brothers, and uh, my older brother, Stefan, he went uh, to Wheaton College uh, just outside of Chicago. And uh, at the same time, my cousin was there with him. And I remember uh, the story that my brother told me uh, when he was there. He would go to the gym with my cousin. And uh, I don't know how much working out they did, um, but there was this one guy that was always there. And he, this guy did some modeling on the side. And uh, my cousin and my brother, at one point, uh, over a span of 60 seconds, I think, um, watched this guy work out. I agree, it's weird. Uh, but they watched him work out, and they counted how many times this guy looked at, his, looked at himself in the mirror while exercising. And I can't remember the, the exact number uh, of how many times it was, but let's just say it was high enough for us to conclude that he wasn't very humble about the size of his arms. He was walking with a lot of pride through that gym. Walking humbly, requir uh, sorry, walking humbly with the Lord requires gentle submission to him and his ways. It requires for us to lay down our pride enough to find our sense of security and control in him. The Israelites put all sorts of things in the way of that and allowed their pride to swell up enough to turn from God. And as I said earlier, there was a lot happening during those times, but the underlining issue of it all was pride that led to idolatry. Pride was so high that everyone felt they had the right to do as they pleased, regardless of how it made others feel and how it made God feel. 
And today, unfortunately, the narrative is the same. With social media continuing to rise and becoming a greater influence, it's so easy for us to focus, uh, our, it's so easy for our focus to turn more and more inward. We post our highlight reels and, and have a desire just to, to share just how awesome our lives are. And there's nothing wrong with achievement. There's nothing wrong with being excited about the good things in our lives. But we have to be careful not to let those things get in the way of our walk with the Lord. This is a journey that requires daily recalibration to make sure we are walking in step with him. Pride will always want to pull its way back into, uh, the, uh, into the situation and change our course. Do not let it and fight the good fight that is in front of you. To wrap all this up, I love what Stephen Um says according to all these things. He says, and so it is God's mercy that empowers ours. It is God's justice that motivates ours. It is remembering who God is that reshapes who we are. If we walk humbly with our God, we will love to be like our God. So we must open the vault of our hearts One of the primary ways we can enact this loving kindness and justice is directly with those around us. If we can begin to steer our gaze away from ourselves and onto others, especially those on the margins and those that are vulnerable, we can catch a glimpse of what Micah meant to love kindness and do justice. When we look out into our world and see all that is happening, or we think about our relationships with God, we think about our relationships with our our loved ones, and we think about our personal situations and the stresses and the burdens, it is so easy to feel overwhelmed and inadequate. I feel this almost on a daily basis. Problems seem so large that we feel paralyzed. Please hear me say that you are not alone. We all feel this. And yet at the same time, we've been given gifts, talents, and experiences, and we are where we are for a purpose, and that purpose is for us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. Your story and your life matters. Do not get bogged down with the if, but, and the how. Rather, take your eyes off yourself and look at what God may be calling you to. For some of you, this may be your first time back in church in a really long time, or perhaps it's your first time in a church ever. For you, I challenge you for once a day, get rid of all the distractions and sit quietly enough to listen into what God may be saying to you. Ask questions and pursue him. I want you to start there. For others, it may be learning to forgive those who have hurt you to allow mercy to flow freely. Or it could involve a career change to use the gifts and the talents God has given you to do justice and fight for others. Or with our new local missions focus, Summit is offering some amazing opportunities to get involved with the local foster care system as well as serving other vulnerable children in our area. I highly recommend you looking into those opportunities and join us in the mission to do justice in our city. But I urge all of you, wherever you are, to start somewhere. We are all on a journey, and it looks differently for all of us. So think through what the next right step is for you, and then take it. We would love nothing more to help you in that. 
For the Israelites, God's justice came through the destruction of their land and exile. Yet Micah did not leave them without hope. He promised them the, the future restoration of God's remnant and a savior out of Bethlehem. For them, this was a prophecy and that of a future hope. And for us today, looking back, we know that these promises came true. We know that his Savior out of Bethlehem did come, and his name was Jesus, that he walked and lived a life here on this earth, and that he lived a life that you and I could not live, and that he took that same life and offered it up so that you and I could live. We as Christians are the remnant and the blessing to all nations across the entire world, just as God promised Abraham all those years ago. We are part of the great story of redemption. God is still at work. He is still calling people back to himself, and he wants to use you, and he wants to use me. We know that one day all things will be made due, and all, and all things will be renewed and restored. Because of God's justice and restoration, you and I get to live in that hope and share that with others by the way we do justice, love mercy, and walk with the Lord. We can do these things knowing Jesus has taken care of the justice of God that you and I deserve. That he loved mercy enough to lay down his life on the cross. And that he walked in humble submission to his Father's will so that you and I can live. Let us do the same. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this message that you gave to Micah all those years ago, Father. And it is fascinating to see how your people were distracted and how your people's motivations are so similar to our own. We all have idols in our lives. We all have things that we look to for a greater sense of security and control that prevents us from doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you. So, Father, I pray that these words that Micah spoke to us uh, through his words, uh, that, that you speak directly to us and that we can move forward from this place, that we can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly according to your word. And I pray that we do not look to ourselves to do that, but we look to the gospel that most of all represents those things. Jesus loved justice enough to lay his life down. He loved mercy enough to do that for us. And he did it because he walked in humble submission to you. I pray that we do the same through that. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.